Welcome to Your Cases on Hold, a JBJS podcast hosted by Antonia Chen and Andrew Schoenfeld. Here, we discuss the science in each issue of JBJS with an additional dose of entertainment and pop culture. Take us with you in the gym, on the commute, or most certainly, whenever your case is on hold. Welcome back to another exciting Your Case is on Hold, episode 42. I'm Antonia Chen. I'm deputy editor for Adult Reconstruction. And I have here... I am Andrew Schoenfeld, deputy editor for Methods. Omnipotens Deus non sum dignus sed tantum dic verbo es senabitur anima mea. Do I bow to you after saying that? No. <laughs> it sounds good. Translation? Yeah. Almighty God, I'm not worthy, but say the word and my soul will be healed. Something like that. You get a lot. You get a lot out of it. It's not just uh, orthopedic science here. I mean. There's much more. Much more. Yeah. So just as you can tell, these opinions are 100% our own and don't reflect anyone else, especially not in the JBJS editorial board or staff. This is sponsored by the Clinical Classrooms. So if you've not been familiar with the clinical classrooms, please sign up for it. Really good information in there. Quick on the information on the go and references a lot of the articles, references all the articles within JBGS. So a lot of information at your fingertips. Without further ado, we're going to jump into Top of the Pile. What's New in Hip Surgery by Morgan. It's permanently free. We also have the Management of Bone Loss and Tunnel Winding in Revision ACL Reconstruction by McMillan. What's Important Humanism by Schaefer, which is also permanently free. And shaping the impact of artificial intelligence within orthopedic surgery by Patel. Any thoughts, my co-podcaster? Yeah, yet another opinion piece on artificial intelligence. I think for those who listened to the last episode, and if you hadn't or you haven't yet, uh, please do check it out. You'll get an earful about my thoughts about. I, I just think like all these, it's it's everything is going to lead us to the promised land. And it, it just ends up being that, you know, after five, six, seven, eight years of looking at it, it's really not that much further than where you were before, before it started. Everything you need to know about how to, how to apply and interpret artificial intelligence models and chat GPT, how they are relevant, how they inform and how they drive the orthopedic field, I think can be found in the Ghostface Killers Iron Man album song assassination day if you listen to assassination day from ghostface killers 1996 iron man album you will get all the information that you need to know about the application and relevance and direct all of it all of it you will get everything out of it by listening to that song it's all going to be there contained in the song check it out that's your pop culture reference of the day boom can, can you name it. all the members of the wu-tang clan no i'm terrible at that I was a terrible medical student when it came to naming song names, artists, and members of the band. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's disappointing. Can you name the 12 apostles since we started with a Latin? Uh, I actually, I could do that. You can do the 12 apostles? I can do 12 apostles way better than I can do any band member. Oh, yeah. Okay. The band members that are much easier for me are people like Beyonce. There's one person to think about. Taylor Swift. There's one person to think about. Much easier that way. Those are not bands. <laughs> Those are artists. Touche. Touche. <laughs> and so I'm very good at naming artists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. How about Sonny and Cher? Who's in Sonny and Cher? <laughs> oh, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> These are but my type of multiple choice questions. You, can, you will get all the insights you need on application of artificial intelligence to the current management of orthopedic surgery. Assassination Day. I will not lead you wrong. 
Go check it out here from the horse's mouth. All right. Talking about this amazing stopping opioids at the surgery score for the sustained use of prescription opioids following orthopedic surgery. Tell us more about your fantastic work. Yes. So uh, as uh, Antonia is sort of not so subtly alluding to, this was work that was conducted by myself and colleagues. This is Crawford and colleagues. It is 30 days free. So uh, please do check it out. We would love to have you looking at, at our work. I don't think I've, I've discussed my own work um, directly. I think I, on this podcast, I think I have discussed some work where I was a, a co-author, but but here I, I am the, uh, the the senior author. So probably not a surprise. You could put it on hold if you want, but probably not a surprise. I'm not putting anything on hold here. Um, at least I'm transparent. So the stopping opioids after surgery score was developed uh, in, in 2019 using data from the military health system. And it's an accessible scoring system that can be used uh, at the time of discharge with information that's readily available from the medical record uh, with minimal input from the patient to develop a score utility that informs the risk of sustained prescription opioid use. It has been validated in civilian spine surgery patients. It's been endorsed by the American College of Surgeons as one of the um, scoring metrics or uh, utilities that can be used to assess risk of sustained opioid use in the Trauma Quality Improvement Program. So what we were looking to do is, is uh, investigate and validate its ability to predict one in an in entirely civilian, broadly orthopedic population, broad orthopedic representative procedures under consideration here. And then also because prescribing practices are changing um, both with sensitivities to the opioid epidemic and then in the context of the COVID pandemic, we wanted to look at the performance of the score across successive time epochs within the, the COVID frame. So a couple of different angles here. We're including data from the MGB health system between 2018 and 2022, and we included um, patients undergoing rotator cuff repair, lumbar discectomy, lumbar fusion, total knee, total hips, the most sublime of all procedures, right? RF of ankle fractures, RF of distal radius fractures, and then ACL reconstruction. What's important here, and what we were intentionally trying to do, is cut across a representative population with varying risks of both preoperative opioid exposure and the risk of sustained prescription opioid use. So we looked at the SOS score, the stopping opioid surgery score is abbreviated the SOS score, and um, looked at its performance both overall in this population and then in the various epochs of the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, basically timeframes that, you know, essentially are kind of like, not exactly, but kind of the nine months of 2020 that were uh, um, related to COVID, the year 2021, and then 2022. So we've got 26,000 patients to consider here. The observed prevalence of sustained opioid use was 1.3% in the range of generally 1.2 to 1.5%. In the low risk group, seven percent in the medium risk, and then twenty one percent in in the uh, high risk, and that does align generally with what we've seen in other um, research settings. So that's reassuring. The SOS score for the group as a whole had excellent uh, discriminatory characteristics, with a C statistic of uh, 0.82. The performance of the score showed no evidence of worsening, depending on the the time frame. So that also is good. 
And the C statistic was 0.79 before COVID, and then between 0.77 to 0.8 through the various waves that I've described. So we do feel that this work has validated the use of the stopping opioids after surgery score for sustained prescription opioid use. The advantages here is an entirely civilian-based population, again, intentionally cutting across various aspects of representative types of orthopedic surgery interventions. It really is easy to implement for the purpose of prospectively identifying patients in musculoskeletal service lines who are at a high risk of sustained opioid use. We think that this enables both future implementation and additional modifications in terms of treatment plans to avert opioid abuse, although that part is you know, still hypothetical. There is room to, you know, prospectively investigate this. There's also room to, you know, discuss a modification where we're not just talking about after surgery, but after musculoskeletal injury, even if it doesn't require surgical intervention. Happy, happy to hear your thoughts. Um, if there are any complaints about this particular study um, now or in the future, please direct them to Antonia. I was going to direct them to Dr. Crawford. Oh yeah, <laughs> you have to always blame Dr. someone Crawford else. Is like fully capable of, of handling <laughs> them as well. Yes, he is. He is very capable of this. And um, you know, like I got the good blame anesthesia. I have to blame other people. That said, I have nothing to put on hold here. I think it's a really important aspect. I think the opioid epidemic, as we all know, is something that's problematic. And whatever we can do to try to reduce the amount of opioids. What's interesting is um, a lot of patients stop taking opioids sometimes too early right? With the sphere, and they're like, well, I'm going to get addicted to it. But there's scores now and metrics by which we can use this to help counsel patients. So very useful and practical research. Absolutely. And there's also, um, I believe, a video summary from Dr. Crawford himself. So you can hear what the first author, you don't take it from me, you can hear what the first author thinks about it. Of course, and it's he's free just going to parrot all the, all the lines that I fed him. So, not And true. it's also not free for 30 days, too. <laughs> So you can read right. it on your own if you don't want to listen to either one of them. Draw your own conclusions, but do check it out. Do check it out for sure. So mine is looking at cementless versus cemented total neoplasty, concise midterm results of a prospective randomized controlled trial by Hannon et al. There's a visual summary that goes with this. So this is a follow-up study of a previous RCT. It started with 141 patients and it was conducted between 2014 and 2016. So that allows for a minimal five-year follow-up in 2016. At this last follow-up, there's only 127 patients available at a minimum five-year follow-up comparing cemented and cementless total knee arthroplasty. The range of follow-up was five to eight years, but the mean follow-up was six years. So as we all know, it's nice to do level one studies where we do prospective randomized studies. It was powered appropriately from the first time around. It is a small number, though, to draw conclusions from. As you can imagine, and it's obviously good to have good midterm results, especially in something where you're looking at something like cemented versus cementless total knee. The idea of cementless ideally is that the bone can grow into the implant itself and result in longevity of an implant. Five years is still probably early for longevity of implant. And you can see that here, that the results um, don't really differ that much between groups. And it looked at implant-free survival, they go to 100%. So neither of them were advised for the implant alone. There was only one patient who underwent a cemented proteoplasty that went from pelvic surfacing who didn't initially undergo pelvic surfacing. They looked at revisions, reoperations, complications, patient reported outcomes, and radiographic analysis. Those are all things that are to be considered, of course. Do take this study with a grain of salt, though, that the research support was provided by the manufacturer of the implants under investigation. Also, probably not surprising, there was no difference in PROMs. They looked specifically at the Oxford knee score, the forgotten joint score, the knee society score or the percentage of normal of these scores. 
The only difference that they found between patients was the satisfaction, which we know is a very subjective variable. They said patients who were extremely satisfied or very satisfied of their overall function was greater in the cementless group, 84% versus 66%, which was statistically significant. But again, we know so many factors play into satisfaction. They said radiographically, there was no evidence of implant loosening in either group. There was more radiolucent lines in the cemented group, actually 42% versus 31% in the cementless group. But these radiolucent lines did not correlate to implant loosening specifically. But more importantly, I think was we really need longer term data. We really need 10, 15, 20 year data to see if there's any differences in A, implant um, survivorship, as well as uh, radiographic differences. Um, and I would like to see this type of study broken down by different types of patients. There have been studies that show that patients who are obese do better with cementless implants. Is that true at a later time frame? They did exclude patients with poor bone quality, but we want to see if those type of patients have difficulty with cemented versus cementless in the uh, future. And then a lot of times people say cementless implants are really good for young active patients. Some people specifically say young active males. I'd love to see what the outcomes would be in this specific type of population. So it's good to have good midterm follow-up, but it is a small cohort of patients. Yes. I think that, you know, there's a couple of issues confronting this particular paper that stood out to me. One is, you know, it is a follow-on study. And I suspect that some of these outcomes that they're discussing, the paper may not have been, or, or the, the original study was not structured to allow for the, this so, you know, I'm surprised that it has a grade of level one evidence. I would say this is probably more level two evidence for that reason alone. Um, and, and secondly, and this is probably the bigger reason, the survivorship free of any revision was 100% in both groups. So if we're going to accept this at face value, that means if you just use this product, you'll never have a revision ever again, right? No, at least at five not. years. At least at five years. <laughs> well, but even at five years, I mean, I know, that, that's I just that's that's not likely to hold up if you expand this population into something that's you know larger number. This is just underpowered, and that is a an artifact. That is a statistical happenstance. It's a hundred percent in both groups. That's just the way it worked out, or it's confounded by you know, there are biases in deciding, you know, you can do a randomized prospective study, but then there are biases downstream in terms of deciding, oh, you know, both on the patient side and the provider side about who gets a revision or if they mm -hmm. want a revision. So I would say that, you know, the 100% in both groups is, is a real artifact and it's unlikely to hold up in, if this is extrapolated into conventional, non-idealized circumstances, however you want to look at that. You know, always take ideal. that what we will. I know. And I wish the ideal circumstances would be every single time, but that's obviously not the case. So it is a special, it's also one institution, right? And that's, you know, not necessarily generalizable across the board. So agreed. There are real cluster effects in this population on the provider, institutional, and even patient population level because this is a randomized controlled trial. A lot of things there. And there's definitely more exclusion criteria, I'd say, with the prospective randomized controlled trial that may not fit right. everyday ideal parameters. So moving on to the next one. And I love your input on this one because the methods on this, I'd be very curious to hear what your thoughts are. Putting I uh, model cost-effectiveness analysis. This is an operative and non-operative treatment of humeral fractures, looking at a cost-effective analysis by Farid et al. Thanks for our trauma colleagues here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. So congratulations. Yeah, we should have called this the Brigham and Women's issue of um, JBJS. 
Um, there's a little variety. There's a little variety here. There's a, yeah, it's not everybody. It's a, we allow a couple couple here and there. Yeah, we're taking over one one journal at a time. So, I can give a little presentation of it, and then I'd love your take on this because <laughs> you know all about the methodology. I'll give a little background, um, but you can yeah. give the real method drill down. But this really right. is a study looking at cost effectiveness of operative versus non-operative treatment of humeral shaft fractures. Humeral shaft fractures tend to happen in younger patients, and then there's a bimodal distribution for its older patients. And that that I'm going to bring into the question of when taking um, work productivity into metric or not. So I'm curious about your take on that one. There was a decision tree made for the operative outcomes, and they also looked at non-operative outcomes. The operative outcomes were successful open reduction internal fixation, revision for implant removal, revision for non-union or non-union, revision for implant failure and infection, and they had antibiotics alone or irrigation debridement, so basically non-surgical versus surgical treatments. And the non-operative outcomes were successful treatment with functional bracing, and then delayed surgical treatment with the failed non-operative treatment. And this is set six months after initial outcome. And they looked at it on one year as well, too. They looked at a bunch of different costs. Operative, they looked at ambulatory surgical fee, physician fee, anesthesia fee. They did account for differences for the time spent doing things like intermedial nailing versus plating. They try to use literature to find this, but it's a lot, it's a lot harder to find this information in literature, unfortunately. In non-operative, unfortunately, they had to exclude the cost of bracing because they couldn't get good numbers on this. The physical therapy and occupational therapy were also not included in terms of cost, but I can imagine that people who underwent surgery also got these. They looked at improvement based on the DASH score, and they used the ICR value of the cost per meaningful change in DASH scores. And they're going to give us a little bit more information on it. And they basically set the willingness to pay threshold of $50,000. If it didn't go over that, then it was cost effective. And they did do sensitivity analyses. One, they looked at um, six months and one year follow-up. And they also looked at mean wage loss for each treatment outcome, assuming that they had wages. So what they said is that these results indicate that operative treatment was more cost-effective at both six months and one year when compared to non-operative treatment. After accounting for lost wages, it was still more effective at both time points. Now, even if you had a 100% probability of non-operative unit in favor of operative intervention, it was more cost-effective. However, at the one-year follow-up, operative treatment crossed that threshold that we're talking about, that $50,000, making non-operative management more cost-effective. If the non-operative union likelihood, so the likelihood of it unionizing without wages was 84%, but 89% in the wage-inclusive models. That's the background. I'd love to hear your take on it. My take on this is that, you know, from a method standpoint, all all the boxes are checked. I mean, they, they are doing a, a, a very good job in terms of making, you know, various assessments, balanced assessments. They did the um, the Monte Carlo simulation and the rollback analysis, all these things. That, and, and all that's fine. My bigger concern is really with the source data. That's where a lot of the issues with these types of comparisons do derive because there is a, a confounding by indication or a selection bias that can inform your data and performance. For example, and I don't know this to be a fact, but one of the concerns is that if all the people who are getting surgery are the high performers, and then all the people who are being treated non-operatively are, are low performers or have all sorts of other contraindications because of medical comorbidities or other issues that they have going on, this can then lead to downstream confounding around the outcomes that they're looking at, including the DASH scores. You know, This is all from existing literature, and you cannot tease out 
selection and indication bias by reading an article, it's not possible. So by taking data out of the literature and plugging it into your model, you know, a lot of people like to use, I don't like the term garbage in, garbage out, but if what you're putting is materially impacted by issues with the source data, there's no way for you to address that either. And of course, there are going to be artifactual effects on the far side. So that's my biggest concern for this. We see this a lot where you have like particular procedures that are done in individuals who have unique population characteristics, like athletes, like uh, elite athletes, NFL, you know, they're doing these procedures and NFL folks to get them back. They have all sorts of physical therapy and a lot of support services around them that the average individual does not. So it makes the outcome look a lot better than it does when you try to apply it to clinical practice. Makes sense. So take it with a grain of salt. Yes. You know, reasonably well done from a method standpoint. There is probably some, you know, value here. If you just want to make the case, you want to do these procedures and say it's cost effective, you can use this data. But I don't think it's necessarily going to play out every single time. No. Good information at least to have. So finishing up with the honorable mentions, we have improvement in sleep disturbance following anatomic and reverse shoulder arthroplasty by Vegas et al. There's an infographic here. This is looking at 989 patients, 517 who underwent total shoulder arthroplasty, and 4702 who went reverse shoulder arthroplasty. The results of the study demonstrated that both of them provided sleep relief mostly at three months and then six months of sleep relief and laying on that side. This is good information for counseling their patients. If they say, I haven't slept well, it could take up to three months, even up to six months, especially if we're going to lay on the operative side. That said, they said 13% of patients in the total shoulder group and 16% in the reverse group cannot sleep comfortably and 31% and that's at three months and 31% in the total shoulder and 37% in the reverse shoulder group cannot sleep on the operative side. So still a high percentage of patients who didn't really feel that comfortable after surgery. Evaluation of racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic disparities and indication for carpal tunnel release by Kaluku. And there's a commentary on this. Patients experiencing higher levels of social deprivation, as measured by the social deprivation index, were less likely to be recommended for carpal tunnel syndrome surgery and were less likely to proceed with surgery, regardless of patient race and ethnicity. So while race and ethnicity are really important, we also want to focus on patients' social deprivation to see if it's something that's precluding them for undergoing potentially a very necessary surgery for them to function well. Concomitant unstable and stable gravity stress tests on weight-bearing stable Weber B ankle fractures treated non-operatively, a two-year outcome study by Gregerson. It's permanently free. There's an infographic and there's a commentary. So this study investigated the influence of a concomitant unstable gravity stress test compared with a stable gravity stress test on outcomes after non-operative treatment of weight-bearing stable fractures. In Weber B SBR ankle fractures that are stable on weight-bearing radar grass, and if they're treated with the removable orthoses and they're allowed to bear weight, a concomitant unstable gravity stress test was not associated with worse patient-reported or radiographic outcomes compared to a stable gravity stress test at the two-year follow-up. Therefore, identification of stress instability may not be necessary. And finally, kite gain following correction of adult spinal deformity by Diebo et al., permanently free with a commentary. The patients who undergo adult spinal deformity always ask, can I get taller or how tall will I get after surgery? This study found that most patients undergoing adult spinal deformity surgery experienced height gain following deformity correction with a mean whole body height gain of 7.6 centimeters. Height gain can be estimated preoperatively with predictive weight zeros as reported in the study. 
and height gain was correlated with improvements in reported SRS 22R appearance and promise scores. There you have it. Thanks for joining us again for episode number 43, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Yeah, ne- the next episode will be 43. Can you believe they've been letting us do this for like 43 episodes? More, almost two, two years now? Almost two full years in the book. Yeah, more to come. Uh, but seriously, check out the Iron Man album. We'll still be here. We're putting cases on hold. Hopefully your cases are on go. Be sure to get subscriptions and um, be sure to subscribe so you get the notifications. Give us a five-star rating if you can. And uh, we'll see you next time. 